we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And our guest this week is Phil Martin, who is Professor Emeritus of Agricultural and Resource Economics at University of California, Davis, basically the leading authority in the United States on the intersection between migration and agriculture. And he has a new book out, Bracero 2.0, Mexican Workers in North American Agriculture from Oxford University Press. And also, we have published a backgrounder by him. The title of it is, Can U.S. Farm Workers Be Replaced by Machines? So these are related topics, obviously, and I thought it would be good to have Phil on the show and talk about it. Phil, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Mark. And if we could talk about the book first, Why Bracero 2.0? Bracero program obviously was the guest worker program from decades ago with Mexican farm workers. What's the goal of the book? The goal of the book is to look backward and look forward. The Bracero program was a series of agreements between Mexico and the United States between 1942 and 1964, brought about four and a half million Mexican workers into the U.S. to fill seasonal jobs. And at the peak in the mid-1950s, Braceros were about 20% of the workers employed on U.S. crop farms. The H-2A program, which is the successor to the Bracero program, remained relatively small due to unauthorized migration after the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. There was a flood of unauthorized workers into the United States. But since about 2013, the H-2A program has grown very rapidly. It's quadrupled in size to almost 400,000, which makes the H-2A workers now approaching 20% of the U.S. crop workforce, I see. just as Braceros were in the mid-1950s. So we're going back to the future Interesting. with a reliance on Mexican-born guest workers in U.S. agriculture. Although back then, the other 80% were probably mostly U.S.-born. Some were illegal, but they would have been guys like Cesar Chavez, you know, American-born people, or even, you know, people who didn't have Mexican roots. That's not necessarily the case anymore, right? In other words, the, if 20% are these H-2A guest worker visa workers, the other 80% are, a lot of them, former illegals or even still current illegals, right? There's a lot of differences between the mid-1950s and the mid-2020s, including what you just mentioned. Today, there are almost three times more unauthorized or illegal Mexican-born 
farm workers than there are legal guest workers. Interesting. Back in the 1950s, they were Mexican-Americans. They were U.S. Blacks. They were Okies and Arkies who had moved to Western states. There were just a lot of, of housewives and teenagers who mm-hmm. did farm work in the summers. So, yes, the situation is quite different between the mid-50s and now. Now we have largely a Mexican-born workforce. About 80% of the hired workers in U.S. agriculture were born in Mexico, including those H-2A guest workers. Right. So let's look at the past and then look to the future. The guest worker program, the old one, the Bracero program from the 40s and 50s and early 60s, that's often pointed to by apologists or, or advocates for new guest worker programs as a great success. People came, worked, left, went back home, win-win for everybody. Didn't that cause a lot of illegal immigration to begin with? In other words, isn't that sort of one of the reasons we even have an illegal immigration problem today? You're right. I mean, the Bracero program sowed the seeds for the huge migration of rural Mexicans to the United States in the 1970s and 80s. Mm -hmm. But with such, we have very politicized migration research, as you know. Mm -hmm. And the research that you're referring to aims to show that the Bracero program did not stop Mexico-U.S. migration. And that's not quite correct Mm -hmm. if you look carefully at the data. What happened is that over the life of the Bracero program, the commodity that took up the most power of any Bracero workers was hand-picking cotton. Interesting. And so it wasn't fruits and vegetables. Hmm. It was hand-picking cotton and working in sugar beets. Both of those commodities were largely mechanized in the 1950s, partly because the technology got better, partly because the Eisenhower administration began to tighten up the rules around exploring Braceros. So Mm. that by the time we get to the early 1960s and President Kennedy saying we need to do civil rights for Mexican-Americans, there was the major commodity that relied on Bracero workers was picking what are called processing tomatoes, the tomatoes that are sliced and diced into ketchup and other tomato products. Right. That commodity alone employed something like 40% of all Braceros. And that's when we have this congressional testimony saying that, yes, mechanization is coming, just like with cotton, but it's at least 10 or 20 years away. And so you can't end the program or else these people won't be able to afford ketchup. Well, the program (laughs) ended in 1964. The harvest was mechanized within five years. By 1970, there was no hand-picking of uh, processing tomatoes. We produced three times more than we did at a much lower cost. And it was an example of even people close to the situation could not predict exactly what was going to happen. The example that makes the point is, at the time the debate was on ending the Bracero program in the early 1960s, the prediction was that lettuce would be machine harvested by 1970, but tomatoes would still be hand-picked until the 1980s. Exactly the opposite happened. Hmm. Lettuce today is still hand-picked, 
and tomatoes have been machine-picked since 1970. So predicting the future of anything, but especially harvest mechanization, turns out to be really hard. I want to get to sort of the central point of the book and also of the background you did for us about how mechanization, guest workers, and imports all kind of are a dynamic combination. But I wanted to ask first, the idea that we can continue to rely on Mexican labor, doesn't it have a problem that there's just not that many people left in rural Mexico, especially working on farms? In other words, so many people have moved to cities, either Mexico's cities or our cities, and farms presumably in Mexico, whether it's a result of NAFTA on its own or other things, have you know begun that process of consolidation that you see in all countries as they develop, aren't there just fewer people, even in Mexico, available to do farm work? Yes, that's correct. Mexico is an urbanizing society. NASA has created lots of factory jobs. But it's important to remember that in a Mexican labor force approaching 60 million, mm-hmm. still the majority of people do not have formal jobs, meaning jobs covered by the minimum wage with pension and other benefits. Oh, really? A majority of its labor force? The majority of the labor force. Interesting. And Mexico's got roughly 3 million hired farm workers, mm-hmm. and about one-fourth of them are employed on farms that export to the United States. Mm-hmm. So in, for many commodities grown in Mexico, say asparagus or cucumbers, broccoli, things like that, Three-fourths of what's produced in Mexico is sent to the United States. Just about half the avocados produced in Mexico are sent to the U.S. Hmm. Half the tomatoes produced in Mexico are sent to the U.S. And on these export farms that employ about one-fourth of Mexican farm workers, wages and benefits are much, much better than they are in the rest of Mexican agriculture and even in some low-end factory jobs. Hmm. Because of pressure from under USMCA and because of US buyer pressure, the surveys find that 90% of the workers employed on export farms are informal jobs covered hmm. by minimum wage. Right. Because the United States, we've actually done this several times, we block imports of Mexican tomatoes if there's any finding of child labor or forced labor. So It must be said that conditions for the one-fourth of Mexicans employed on the farms that export to the U.S. are by and large good, but the hourly wages there are still only between $2 and $3 an hour, whereas in the United States, under the guest worker program, the minimum wage is between $15 and $20, and so some farms that have operations in both Mexico and the U.S., they reward their best Mexican workers with an H-2A visa at the end of the season. Oh, interesting. There is some of this going back and forth, but it's important to just point out that 60% of our fresh fruit and 40% of our fresh vegetables are imported already. And you know, half of the fresh fruit imports and three-fourths of the fresh vegetable imports come from Mexico because it's so much easier and more flexible to ship them by truck. And the same infrastructure to move all those auto parts back and forth also moves fresh produce uh, to the border and into the United States. So 
Mexico is a major player, and the rise of imports from Mexico is a major factor in many of the commodities produced in the U.S. Interesting. So now I want to get to kind of one of the main points you make in the book and the backgrounder is this interplay between mechanization, guest workers, and imports. So if you could kind of sum up the punchline of that, and then we can talk a little bit more about that. So mechanization is an old story in agriculture. After all, we started out when our first census, 95% of Americans lived on farms in 1790, and today we're down to under 2%. So labor-saving change in agriculture that frees people up to do something other than produce food is a universal story around the world. And over the last decade, farm earnings, so the average earnings of farm workers, have actually been increasing faster than the average earnings of non-farm workers. Interesting. So those rising costs in agriculture have pushed farmers to mechanize where they can. They've pushed some farmers to rely more on H-2A workers who are younger and more productive than the diverse U.S. workers out there. And some farmers have given up on producing commodities that can be imported cheaper than producing here. So the race in the fields is between machines, migrants, and imports. And it plays out differently in different commodities. So take two examples. The first is apples. Apples are the largest single labor user in U.S. agriculture, about 300,000 acres, two-thirds in Washington and Michigan, New York, and many other states. And right now, almost all fresh apples are hand-picked by workers who climb ladders, pick the apple, put it in a bag, bring it down, and dump it into a bin that weighs roughly 925 pounds. And workers get paid a piece rate of roughly $30 to pick each bin of apples. And workers typically pick six bins in an eight-hour day. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. is a net exporter of fresh apples. We export those apples to China, to Mexico, and other countries. So in apples, what's happening is that farmers are replanting orchards with very small dwarf trees and training the limbs to grow on what are called fruiting walls. So a, a modern apple orchard looks like a vineyard with the limbs on grown on wires. Interesting. And that makes the apples really easy to see and easy to see for a hand picker as well as for a robot. So there's half a dozen companies that are making robotic apple pickers. A human can pick an apple in about two seconds and put it in the bag. And the robot is now at about four seconds, but the robot started out at 12 seconds. Hmm. So clearly the robot is getting better. And what's happening in apples is that the apple growers are using H2A workers as what many of them see as a bridge to full mechanization. There's not much threat of imports, so apples will continue to be produced in the U.S., but by 2030, a good share of them are likely to be picked by robots. So the apples are an example of where migrant H-2A people are going to serve likely as a bridge to fuller mechanization. 
Tomatoes are a different story. About 60% of the fresh tomatoes that we eat or buy in the supermarket or find in fine dining restaurants are imported already. So these are non words, not the stuff that goes into tomato sauce and ketchup that you were referring to earlier. Right. And what has happened in fresh tomatoes is an interesting story. The U.S. industry specializes in what are called mature green tomatoes. Big tomatoes that are picked green and then ripened with ethylene gas. And that's what Burger King and McDonald's like. They like big tomatoes that are hard and you slice. That's why they're so crummy when you buy those. (laughs) People go to the farmer's market to get real ones instead. Americans don't seem to like them. (laughs) And in Mexico, most tomatoes are produced in what's called controlled environment agriculture. So it's not necessarily greenhouses, but shade houses or plastic-covered tunnels. And so Mexico supplies about 60% of our fresh tomatoes. And people prefer them. And what is happening is that the U.S. mature green tomato industry is shrinking. Hmm. And Florida is protesting and wants to block Mexican imports while imports just continue increasing. And the U.S. response has been that there are new greenhouses near cities, especially in the eastern United States. So the U.S. is catching up, as it were, with the way most fresh tomatoes are grown in Mexico, as well as in Canada, for that matter. Mm -hmm. And we still have a significant but shrinking mature green tomato industry in both Florida and in California that is very worried about Mexican imports. So tomatoes is an example of something that probably will not be mechanized, Mm -hmm. but will shrink as imports rise. Many tomato farmers say, block Mexican imports, let in Mexican workers. Policy plays a role here as to what the ultimate outcome in tomatoes will be. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask generally in this interplay between mechanization, guest workers, and imports. What is the role of policy? And for instance, you were saying that a lot of apple farmers see the guest worker program as a bridge to mechanization, but often those kind of bridges never end, depending on, you know, how effective the lobbyists are and what's happening with investment and technology. Would a shrinkage in the H-2A program kind of speed movement along that mechanization bridge, or, and I guess this depends on the crop, would it simply lead to more imports? There's a whole lot of different policies that affect things. So in apples, what's been happening is that a lot of pension money and investment funds are moving into investing in perennial crops. I mean, the Harvard Endowment, Bill Gates, all of these big investment funds own large acreages of wine grapes and apples and pears and peaches and other things. Interesting. Because they can get a current return And the assumption is the value of the land will increase over time. Hmm. So apples happens to be a case in which we don't just buy red and yellow apples anymore. We buy them by variety. And every year there's new varieties that command higher prices. So apples is a case of where consumers want something different. Deep-pocketed people are available. That's why the replanting is coming fairly fast. And... There we have a case of 
tax policy, being able to write off the investments in new orchards or get tax benefits for it. Trade policies, we subsidize, we promote exports of apples in Hmm. some ways. Hmm. And migration policy, we allow the import of H-2A workers work together to say that we're going to replant, but replant in ways that eventually, if the machines are developed, they'll be adopted. But it is true that if if we make it easier, right now there's a push to freeze the adverse effect wage rate, if we make it easier and cheaper to employ H-2A workers, we will push back the time when mechanization eventually takes over. Right. So it's the interaction of these policies that determine exactly how fast something happens. And one of the things, this is related, but I mean, one of the dynamic responses to different policies like this, you know, if you were, for instance, to make it harder to or less desirable to import H-2As, would one of the things that happen is that farmers change the things they grow? In other words, some crops are just easier to mechanize, I assume, and others are not. And so if it's harder to import people to pick raspberries, and I'm just picking examples out of the air here, is it more likely that uh, you know farmers might decide they're going to plant potatoes or something instead that are more easily harvested by machine? That's exactly what happens. The difficulty is the problem in agriculture is that farmers overproduce. Buy response in agriculture is phenomenal. If people think they can make a profit, they overproduce. So mm-hmm. waste is an inherent feature of especially fresh fruit, vegetable agriculture. When you look at government statistics, you realize that every year thousands of acres of lettuce do not get harvested. Hmm. But why did they plant so many extra acres? Because growers sign contracts to deliver to McDonald's or supermarkets that have huge penalties if they don't deliver. So they plant lettuce in various places just in case there's weather disease. Oh, I see. And then if it's bad at one place, they can supply from somewhere else. So what happens is that when a commodity is losing profitability, like raisin grapes, then old raisin grape acreages are taken out and almonds are planted instead. But we've overproduced almonds, so the price has dropped. $4 a pound, so about $1.50 a pound. And now some farmers are planting pistachios, which are now more profitable. But I think the overall story is, yes, we are moving away from labor-intensive commodities that are not terribly profitable, like those mature green tomatoes. And farmers are searching for something else that's less labor-intensive but more profitable. Mm-hmm. But that's often difficult to find. And what's been happening is that each time we mechanize a commodity, say blueberries, then we plant more of something else, whether it's expanded nurseries that provide houseplants that's considered agriculture. Mm. And that's, there's been COVID brought a huge expansion of the nursery industry in the United States. And that's got a, a lot of hand labor. And that's why the uh, lobbyists here in D.C. for the Nurserymen's Association is so intimately involved in the immigration debate. Right. They, I mean, it switches between H2A and H2B. And if you get into the details of these debates, 
If it's H-2B, they have to pay overtime wages. If it's H-2A, they don't have to. But And so there's all kinds of machinations going on to get things that we might consider a non-farm job to be considered a farm job because that can have certain cost advantages. But the background story is rising labor costs promote labor-saving change across the board. Right. But within each commodity, agriculture is diverse, there are differences. Right. You were saying at one point that this was earlier, and you were explaining that mechanization often requires a more hands-on role for government, at least initially, to kind of change the way the whole system from planting to harvesting to collecting it, however that works. If you could explain a little bit about that. I remember, I forget what it was, but you said there was some commodity they had to change the way it was measured or change the way it was delivered to processors, something like that. Uh, So my point is, there is a role for government in sort of getting over the hump from doing things one way to if you do mechanization, you have to change sort of the whole system for how the commodity is handled. That's very correct. And tomatoes, that processing tomatoes provides a very good example. Braceros pick tomatoes into 50 to 60 pound lugs. The processing tomatoes are worth two cents a pound. So therefore, you stack all these lugs up you remember they're hand-picked, so they don't have many leaves or dirt in them. You take them to the processing plant. They check some of them, and if they say, whoop, there's dirt in here, leaves, they reject it, the farmer loses a dollar. Mm-hmm. Now, with machines, the tomatoes come in 25-ton truckloads. And so now they're worth several thousand dollars per load. And now, if they're rejected, Four or $5,000 is a lot of money. I see. And so two things happen to facilitate use of the machines. First, the government set up stations that randomly took samples. And based on those samples, that's what the grower got paid. There's a quality differential. Secondly, the sorting out of debris, which used to happen in the fields, was switched to the processing plant. And then as the machines got better, there was less and less need to have people on the line as the tomatoes came down to sort out what they call material other than tomatoes. Right. And so that was the story. The government was the honest broker there that helped to go between farmers who get paid by weight and want to put everything possible in with the tomatoes and the processors who have to sort out things that are not tomatoes and government played that role. Today there's not government doesn't really play that role and there's really no honest broker in the middle in many of these cases to decide or to help facilitate the mechanization. Interesting. And that kind of leads to my policy question and that is sort of what are the policy decisions that Congress and the bureaucracy face that would lead to going more in one direction or more toward imports or more toward, say, guest workers or mechanization? In other words, where are sort of the pressure points where a decision will actually reverberate further you know, into the future throughout the industry? Well, anything that raises farm labor costs is going to speed up these transitions. 
Right. And over the past, say, five or six years, the biggest drivers of change toward mechanization and toward imports have been not happening at the federal level, but at the state level. Really? It's been the huge increases in minimum wages hmm. in some states, as well as requirements in many states that farmers have to pay overtime wages for workers. So in many cases at farm meetings, people look at these graphs of labor costs rising and say, there's really nothing in the card that is going to reduce that trend. Right. There is a push right currently to freeze the adverse effect wage rate. Which is what? Just for is a super minimum wage that has to be paid to H-2A guest workers and any U.S. workers who are employed alongside them. Right. So in California, for example, the state minimum wage is $16 an hour, and the adverse effect wage rate is nineteen seventy-five an hour. Which is a federally set thing. That's a federally set thing. Right. Okay. And so there's a effort. So in the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, which passed the House in 2019 and 2021, there's a proposal that it includes a provision that freezes this adverse effect wage rate and requires a study of whether it's needed. So in other words, that would prevent the costs of labor going up in that way and in a sense, slow down the process of mechanization. That's right. And that's the current effort underway is to question this rising AWER. But remember, it's really applicable mostly in the southeastern states where the federal minimum wage is still seven twenty five an hour. The AWAR is about $15 an hour, so it's about twice as much. Mm-hmm. But I think that, that probably labor cost is number one. Second is going to be trade policy. Are we going to continue to have fairly open borders for Mexican produce, for Peruvian Peru is now the world's biggest exporter of blueberries Hmm. for Chilean produce, or are we going to get tougher on trade? Because clearly we can do a lot. We can import more, or we can import the workers to produce it here. And then the final piece of the action is really tax policy and research and development policy. Back in the 1960s, it was really land-grant universities that did much of this mechanization research. There were some lawsuits in the 1970s that said you should not be using tax monies to displace poor farm workers and small farmers. And so now there's relatively little research at land-grant universities. Most of the robotic harvesting machines are being funded by venture capital. And the problem is that that venture capital wants a big return quickly, and it's hard to achieve in agriculture. Interesting. So from the perspective of uh, a concern for importing foreign farm workers, it seems to me the sort of policy avenues to get there would be, first of all, to enforce the border, to make it more expensive to use guest workers, to ensure that trade from exporters of fresh fruits and vegetables remains relatively easy. So tighter immigration, looser trade rules, and funding, if possible, funding for research into new technologies to enable mechanization to do more and more of this kind of work. That's exactly right. Anything that raises 
labor costs, that holds down produce prices like imports, and that speeds up mechanization is going to accelerate the drive for what everybody knows is coming, a future U.S. agriculture that has more labor-saving machines and fewer low-skilled hand workers out there picking fruits and vegetables. In a sense, what you're saying is that we're going to have fewer imported foreign farm workers regardless, just because that's the way the economy and demography is working. The question is, do we start adjusting to it more quickly or more slowly through policy decisions? That's that's exactly right. We can speed up this inevitable transition, or we can slow it down. I mean, the same thing has happened historically. When people, the soldiers came back from World War I, there were still a lot of forces pulling, pulling plows. Right. During the 1920s, the cost of tractors went down. There were jobs in factories, and that speeded up the substitution of tractors for horses. Mm-hmm. We have black sharecroppers picking cotton. Then along came World War II, not many people, and that speeded up cotton mechanization. Right. Although it was slower in places that relied on Bracero's. So once again, if we have a situation in which labor costs rise, the availability of imports keeps a lid on grower prices, and we've got new technology being developed, those things will come together and we will have an agriculture that is far more mechanized than it is now. Interesting. Well, thank you, Phil. This was actually very enlightening. I even learned a few things having read about this for a long time. There's still more that I need to learn about this. So I appreciate your coming on the show. Again, Philip Martin is an emeritus professor at UC Davis, author of a new book, Bracero 2.0, Mexican Workers in North American Agriculture. And also today when we post this podcast, we're also publishing a backgrounder by him that addresses some of these issues about the interplay between machines, imported workers, and imported fruit. So thank you, Phil, and we'll keep in touch. And maybe if there are new developments, we'll have you back on the show. Thank you very much. And now for something completely different, as they used to say in the old Monty Python show, a few comments on something that happened this week. This week, the White House has basically proven that Republican objections to the Senate border bill were correct all along. The president had authority. He could use more authority, but he had authority to control the border. What happened was that Axios, which is an insider kind of DC politics publication, got a leak from somebody in the White House that in preparation for next month's State of the Union address, that they were considering in the White House a bold move that's the way they put it, a bold move, issuing, quote, an executive order that would dramatically stanch the record flow of migrants into the Southwest, unquote, thereby proving everything that Republicans said about the Schumer-Lankford bill, that it was a bad bill and the president had authority to actually act against illegal immigration if he wanted to. And this comes after three years, of course, of the President and others in the White House and Homeland Security saying they were doing all they could. They couldn't do anything else without more legislation from Congress, more authorities from Congress. It was all baloney. Everybody knew it was baloney, but in a sense, the president seems to be uh, making clear. Now, 
it's not clear what this executive order would be. They may never even do it. They may have just floated it to see what the reaction would be. But it's clear that the administration understands what a political vulnerability this is among all voters, not just Republican voters, but voters across the board, and that um, you know that there's a need to take some kind of measure that would persuade at least some people in the middle who don't pay attention to the issue very much and just watch the regular news that he can somehow lessen the political damage this issue is doing to him by supposedly striking a pose of taking a tough stance against illegal immigration. It remains to be seen whether this will actually work. I actually brought the issue up in a general way in last week's podcast with Rui Teixeira. You can go back and listen to that if you missed it. He was skeptical. Uh, He said, you know, is anybody really going to believe White House moves like this, that somehow this is the Republicans' fault or that the administration is acting vigorously to stop illegal immigration? I don't know. Uh, He didn't think people would buy it. Uh, It does seem improbable, but we're going to see if the White House tries that gambit and whether people believe something so obviously preposterous. That will be for the future. We'll probably talk about that in future podcasts. But for now, this is Mark Krikorian signing off for Parsing Immigration Policy and hoping you tune in next week.